Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all and those watching online as well. We are in our third week of a six-week series that we're calling Everything. And it's the kind of series that we call a Story of God series. We do this every once in a while. And the whole idea behind a Story of God series is that we take a theme, a prominent theme in the Bible that runs, threads its way through the whole story. And we start at the beginning and then we stop at various places along the way in the story of God. And uh, today we're going to be, uh, at, if, if you're taking our story of God course, you're familiar with these symbols. It kind of takes you through the story. We're here in the portion of the Bible where the law is being given to the people of Israel for the very first time. We're going to look at that. And we're, we're actually going to spend a couple of weeks in that area before the time of the kings. Uh, next week we're going to we're going to look at the story of Ruth, and it's just a beautiful story and some aspects of it that I think are oftentimes overlooked. Um, so the theme that we're tracing through the story is the theme of God's ownership of everything and how it is that when we have the conviction that God owns everything, uh, it not only makes a difference in our lives, which then impacts other people's lives, but it also leads to greater peace and greater joy in our own lives. So today we're looking at how not to let money and possessions ruin and rule over us. Um, so not ruin our lives and not rule over us. So there are a lot of landmines in our own lives when it comes to money and possessions. And in fact, almost every religion deals with this. Uh, if not every, every major religion deals with this. Every major philosophical system deals with the problem of money in our lives, that it can rule over us and, rule our, uh, rule and, and ruin our lives. And it's so easy to, for that to happen. At the same time, there's been so much abuse in religious circles with regard in churches, with regard to money, that uh, even though Jesus talked about it as like one of his major topics, uh, it it's always feels like a landmine for pastors to talk about it. Um, and, in, and the reality is that it is a bit of a landmine because there are people that have been deeply hurt. And so, uh, you know, I, I keep that in mind, but we don't shrink back from talking about things that the Bible talks about. Uh, here at Five Oaks, we try to do it sensitively and with nuance and all those sort of, sort of things. So um, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fifth book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14. And there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those if you want to follow along in the, in the story that we're going to be reading or the section that we're going to be reading. While you turn in your Bibles, I want to remind you that Understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, and that's why we open our Bibles every single week, and we study, and we have small groups to study, and we encourage people to read the Bible for themselves during the week, to reflect on it, and that is one of the key ways that we can grow spiritually. Also, we want to remind you that if you have people in your life who are asking questions and, and uh, motivated to know more about the Bible, this is a place where you can invite them uh, to participate with us and with our church family and it's a safe place to be able to ask their questions and to be able to explore Christianity and explore the Bible. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to reveal uh, his truth to our word, to our lives and empower us to live it. 
Heavenly Father, guide us by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see clearly, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your joy and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, let's follow along as a couple of five ochres read our passage. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, and you have been blessed by the Lord your God, and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver, and take the silver with you, and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all of the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. All right, so money... um... Money and possessions, they, they have a power uh, oftentimes in our lives to try to define us. And we define ourselves oftentimes by what we have and by what we don't have. Uh, so in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller uh, references a scene from Rocky where uh, he's been telling Adrian that he wants to go to the distance. He wants to go to the distance. And finally, Adrian says, why is it so important for you to go the distance? And many of you will remember the line, then I'll know I'm not a bum. In the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters uh, says something very similar. Uh, he's going to be doing the 100-yard, long time ago, so it was 100-yard uh, race in uh, the Olympics. And he explains the importance of it in his life. He says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. So these two characters, for them, athletic achievement was a defining force that gave meaning to their lives. But Keller, in that book, Reason for God, notes that there are an infinite number of things that we can grab onto to give meaning and purpose and definition of who we are to our lives, identity to our lives. So Keller has this this footnote that I have uh, quoted quite often. I don't think I've quoted many footnotes, and uh, certainly not repeatedly as I have this footnote in the book. It it expands like two pages, and I'm going to give you a sampling of this footnote that ties to this whole discussion. He says, if you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you will have no purpose. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will 
if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. And this is the one we're gonna focus a little bit more on today, or not this, but this whole subject. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. So that's gonna be the focus. How can we keep money from uh, ruling our lives and then ruining our lives because it rules our lives? Two weeks ago, we focused on this whole conviction that God owns everything and how that leads to joy and an enduring happiness in our lives. Last week, we talked about how to love our kids best by loving God most. This week, we're looking at how God addresses the temptation to center our lives and our identity around money and possessions. Now, I think uh, Keller is right on the money when he says that if you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money and more. You can add envy to that list, discontent to that list, a lot of, lot of other things. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle. You'll be willing to go against what God is calling you to do, to do the things that you want to do. And eventually it'll blow up your life if you will rule your life like a false god. And it's not a good god. That's why it ruins you, because it's, it's not a good god. So how can we keep money and possessions from ruling and ruining our lives? So the Bible, and especially Jesus, speak to this a lot, and um, we're gonna look at three ways today and focus most of our attention on this passage, which uh, God, through Moses, gives to the people of Israel while they're in the wilderness before they even go on to the uh, promised land. So, uh, but we'll look at some other passages as well along the way. So the first way, that we can keep it from ruling and ruling our lives is to offer it, offer it to God. It begins with an acknowledgement, by offering it means acknowledge, that everything belongs to God and we need to offer everything, everything, including our money and our possessions, to him to be used as he wishes. So in Psalm we've seen the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it, it all, belongs to God, everything belongs to God. A lot of Christians believe that, um, you can hear this in subtle ways, I don't know if you press them, whether they would say this, but the idea is that 10% of their income, they believe, belongs to God, and then the rest belongs to them. That's not what the Bible teaches. From the beginning of the Bible, in the Old Testament, all the way to the very end, everything belongs to God. And then uh, it warns us that either God owns it, we recognize that, or it owns us. So C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, if you're familiar with that, it's it's an imaginary tale of a senior demon. It's letters written by a senior demon to a junior demon, kind of coaching them on how to trip up this Christian, pre-Christian and then a Christian. And um, and then uh, this this is the advice the senior demon gives. He says, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. 
The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. It's kind of a theme that we have going through here. Humanity has struggled with this ownership thing from the beginning, and that's why you know we see, as human beings, we see the personal ruin it can bring to people's lives. We see the impact it can have on society um, and you know lives of people in general. And so it's a major focus, as I said earlier, of every major religion and every philosophical system. So in the New Testament times, two of the major philosophies were Stoicism and Cynicism, and Cynicism was not what you think it is. It's a completely different thing than what you think it is, unless you studied it. <laughs> Stoicism and Cynicism, um, they address this constantly. Eastern religions address this constantly, how not to be controlled by money and possessions. We know that money can easily own us, so we're constantly trying to find ways of taking control back. Problem is, we're taking it back instead of giving control to God in our lives, who owns it all. Again, trying to take control back from money and things isn't a specifically Christian thing or biblical thing. Steve Jobs uh, was known for having given up on um, what he called rational religion from the time he was a teenager. But one of the things that he pursued um, was uh, personal peace through primarily Zen Buddhism. So uh, if you've read his biography, there's some of the things that he would do that were very interesting. He'd buy a mansion but not furnish it <laughs> so that uh, he could be free from being owned by stuff. That's how much he recognized this. As wealthy and famous as he was, he, he just refused. I mean, he said it. He would not live in a gated community. He lived simply enough that his son would refer to their wealthy family friends as our rich friends. And he would say things like, the son would say, we're going out on a boat of one of our rich friends, thinking like, we can't get a boat. That kind of idea. So what Jobs was trying to do, it comes out in his story, is he's trying to take control of money so that money wouldn't control him. So in the Bible, the approach is different. It begins by offering to God all that we have, including our money and possessions, but it's not a one-time event, and it's not about taking control ourselves. It's about learning in life, growing, to trust God more and more and to really offer everything to God. So how do we offer everything to God? The rest of the sermon kind of talks about that. Um, but it really begins with an acknowledgement. It comes with a rational decision that says, yes, even though there's parts of me and even in my mind that argue against this, I recognize that God is the owner of everything, including all my money and all my possessions. So how do we keep money and possessions from ruling and ruling our lives? We offer it. Secondly, we give it. So the, the Old Testament makes a big point. So this is New Testament, so does Jesus. Uh, but it makes a big point about giving in a particular way, giving proportionately, mindfully, and cheerfully. Proportionately, mindfully, and cheerfully. It, it makes this point repeatedly. 
And as you're gonna see in Deuteronomy 14, this passage, all three are there. And so we'll, we'll look at that in some other passages. So um, it teaches us to give proportionately. Uh, so it, look at verse 22, Deuteronomy 14. Be sure to give, to be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Now, tenth is the word tithe. Some people use the word tithe to refer to offerings, just kind of in a general term. You know, whatever I give is my tithe. But in biblical language and in the biblical text, tithe always refers specifically to 10%. Now, there were many tithes in Israel. You know, take a tithe of what your fields, but then there was a tithe of when you, you get your first fruits, and there was, there was a lot of different tithes, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out, but some people estimate it was a lot more uh, than, than 10%, but, um, but a tithe is, is a proportion. It's proportionate to what you get. So the law prescribed um, uh, for, so a richer person, for example, uh, in Israel would give the same percentage as a poorer person, but the amount would be much higher. And a poorer, percent, a poorer person would give the same percent as a richer person, but that total would be much smaller. Now the reality is given human nature, I think a lot of times when we are on the poorer end of the scale, we might think, uh, it doesn't always work out this way, but we might think that if, you know, when I have more, I'll give more. Reality is if we don't give 10%, which 10% of a little is a little. <laughs> might feel like a lot, but it's a little. You get to where you're, you're more affluent, 10% is a big number. And you can do the calculations and you can think of all the things that you could do with that 10%. And so it's very tempting to think, well, I will then, but if you don't do it here, there's a good chance you won't do it there. Proportion was built into what the law um, called for, e even not only in the giving of a tithe, but proportion was given into free will offerings. Okay, it wasn't like a percentage, but it was a proportion, um, it, it proportionate. And so in Deuteronomy 16, for example, it says three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord, your God, has blessed you. And by that, it means, you know, by, you know, how well you've done, you know, that year is what it's talking about specifically in that context. So the Bible teaches that God has given you everything and then gives us, God gives us a spiritual discipline to remind us that it all belongs to God. He asks us to give from what he has given us and from what is ultimately his, which is ironic it's like, it's mine, I give it to you, give back a portion to remind me, remind you, that it all belongs to me. So, it's like a story told by a dad, a story told about a dad who goes to a movie with his daughter, he buys her some Skittles. During the movie, he looks over, he says, can I have, can I have some Skittles? She says, no, they're mine. <laughs> And he thinks to himself, the irony of, um, well, I could take it all back. Um, or I could buy an entire supply 
of Skittles that the theater has and give them to her. <laughs> That's the reality. And I gave it to her <laughs> in the first place. By your actions, the question is, are you saying to God, it's mine, it's mine? Are you saying that to God who gave it to you in the first place and who could buy the supply of everything and give it to you? When we give proportionately, we're reminded that God owns it all. I think we have to understand that it's a spiritual discipline, spiritual practice that forms us, that reminds us that God owns it all. Now, a lot of people wonder if 10% is the amount that God still expects. I mean, this is, this is looking back at the people of Israel. Um, in our story of God, of course, we, we talk about this. It's, not, um, it's more complex than this, but... but it's correct to say that there are at least three categories of laws in the Old Testament. There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. And you can break it down a lot more than that, but, but let's just, let's go that deep. And the question is, is the giving a tithe a part of the civil and ceremonial law, which is fulfilled in Jesus, and that we're not living under that, or is it part of the moral law, which extends you know, beyond that covenant? that the people of Israel had. And so um, here's, here's my answer to that question, just by looking at the whole of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, the concept of 10% of tithe is portrayed as a benchmark of what it means to be generous. Each time, you know, aside from the free will offerings, each time there was a opportunity for giving financially or from crops or anything, it was always the tithe. It's given as kind of a, a benchmark of what it means to be generous and as a discipline to remember that God owns it all. Are we under that law? I don't think so. But we have that guidance from God. So if you're new to faith um, and you haven't been a giver, <laughs> It's probably going to be something that you have to grow into as you learn to trust God more in everything. It's really a matter of trust. Does God know better than I know? And in our, in our Christian life, that's a journey. It's not like um, some people treat this as like, no, this one you've got to get right immediately. It's like you're not getting all these other things right immediately. So this is something that you may... Uh, have to grow into. If you've gone through some really hard times financially, maybe because of your own mismanagement, maybe because of uh, forces that are completely outside of your control, you're probably going to need to grow in this direction. You're probably maybe going to have to get some things in your life in order to get to the point, but you can grow little by little. I, I often give the, you know, in January, I usually say um, it's tied to, you know, our, your planning. Uh, I make the suggestion that if you're 2%, think about 3%. If you're 4%, think about 5% and so on um, and act on it so that you are growing in that way. Because a lot of times we grow in faith by actually taking a risk of faith. And in fact, almost always that's how we grow in faith. So it's all about a journey of faith and growth and following God as he, as he leads us. If you're a mature Christian and you're financially stable, you're affluent, let's say you're, you're affluent, 
I'm maybe going to want to challenge you a little bit here for a moment. And this is, this is tricky. I've kind of rewrote, written this. If I showed you my notes, you'd see writing all over the place. Um, be careful. Let's say you're, you're seeking to be faithful in your giving. Be careful that your giving doesn't just become a duty type of thing and doesn't move to delight. God wants us to move to delight. We'll look at that in just a few moments. Be careful that it doesn't just become a duty thing. Now, duty is good. In our lives, there's a lot of times when we don't feel it. And whether we feel it or not matters nothing. We need to follow God and what he says. But feelings are important. And if we're consistently like this, you know, like this, it's probably not a good thing, as we're going to see in just a few moments. So be careful. Say, well, I, I give my 10%. Um, be careful. It's not just a, a, a duty uh, type of thing. Um, be constantly looking at what are the forces in my life that are in my, and in my heart that are creating a discontent that causes me to feel tight-fisted with my money and like I need more and I need more. What are the forces that are doing that in my life? By the way, the reason that I feel, actually feel comfortable talking about this subject is because Lois and I practice what I'm sharing with you. And, um, and so I'm not sharing something with you that, that we don't either struggle with or that we're not, we're not growing in and, and, and practicing what I'm suggesting to you. So um, if you're affluent, we'll get to this later again. Be sure you understand the, the, the power of money and the dangers um, of money. Um, and so if you're affluent and you're giving less than the benchmark, th think about, and I'm not saying giving it all to the church, I'm saying giving it beyond, we, we say around here, listen, if you've been burned by churches and you don't wanna give to the church because you don't trust churches anymore or pastors, give someplace else. Don't, let, don't, don't use that as an excuse to hold on to more than what God is asking you to share. So uh, check your heart on this. Don't, don't become complacent because you're giving a certain amount or because the amount that you're giving looks really big, but it's not probably really generous, proportionate to what you're making. So the Bible instructs consistently to give proportionately. It also instructs us to give cheerfully. This is where the attitude thing comes in. In the New Testament, um, the importance of giving um, with an attitude that brings pleasure. It, it, it's like give de, you know, with delight, a sense of cheerfulness because of the pleasure that it gives God. And so one of the key passages on this uh, <clears throat> you might be familiar with is the Apostle Paul. He's not talking about the regular giving. In this passage, he's talking about he's going to be coming through Corinth and on his way there, he's, going to be take, he's asking them to take an offering before he gets there. He's going to take it to Jerusalem because they've gone through, the Christians in Jerusalem have gone through a really, really difficult time, famine and all that. And this is his advice to them. Remember, whenever, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giver. And that's, that's a key phrase there. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, 
having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. <clears throat> Excuse me. So God loves a cheerful giver so much that when you read the Old Testament passages on tithing, um, those of you who've been around a while, you've, you've heard this before, but he like makes it really difficult not to give cheerfully. I mean, really difficult. And we just saw it in the passage, but I don't know if you, if you caught exactly what he's saying. Look, look at verse 22 and, um, and just understand that when they gather, they, they, they're throwing a big party. And the funds for the party come from their tithe. All right, the funds for their party comes from their tithe. Verse 22, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain. It doesn't say, like, get there and eat all 10%. He's saying eat from it is what, what it's meant. Um, eat from the tithe of your grain, or eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your flocks, and flocks, uh, or herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, remember they're in the wilderness, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your time, you got too much to take because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is far away. Okay, they don't have, you know, the temple yet, you know, that kind of a thing. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. <laughs> All right, he's setting up a joyous occasion that giving should be a joyous occasion. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So take a portion, throw a party. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> and so some people, I've always kind of predicted, you know, some people may go, well, that's the problem with that modern translation thing. So I want to read you what it says in the King James, okay? And this is hard to read. <laughs> so I'm out of practice. <laughs> thou shalt, uh, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen or for sheep or for wine or for strong drink or for whatsoever thy soul desireth and thou shalt eat it there before the Lord your God, thy God and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. A couple of things as I read that is I'm so glad for modern translations. <laughs> but the second one is how can people of the book read this and be such killjoys? <laughs> I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. God wants us to take joy in giving. God models generosity, and he asks us to be generous in our giving. The New Testament drives the point home differently because there's no more of these annual tithes and feasts, but the same principles remain. Give. God loves a cheerful giver. Offer your money to God as owner of it all. Give it cheerfully. 
Thirdly, give it mindfully. And that's basically, you know, just looking again at verse 22, um, he's driving home the, the why behind it and the planning that goes into it. Be sure to set aside a tenth. There's the planning of all that your fields produce each year. Um, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your flocks, herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. And here's the why. So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So do it mindfully. Um, it's clearly portrayed as a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline akin to so many of the other spiritual practices and disciplines that help to form and shape our minds and our hearts so that you may revere the Lord your God always. You learn to revere the Lord when you give um, mindfully. If you're giving kind of like ritualistically or I must do this, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not shaping you. In fact, it's shaping you in the wrong direction. We need to give as an act of love from our hearts. And Jesus spoke to this. And kind of counterintuitively, he, he said this. Um, he said, store up, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he's, he's talking about sharing what you have. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what Jesus drives home is the heart is going to follow where you give, but it does have to be mindful, okay? It can't be like your heart's going to follow just because you, you know, reluctantly do something. There is a, I mean, the rest of the passage, there's very clear trying to speak to the heart and recognizing that we serve a good God who cares about us. And, and so there's a whole attitude thing that goes along with that. So you need to be mindful of God's ownership and provision through your giving. And, um, and be mindful of the needs, like mindful of the Levites, the widows, the foreigners. Look at, um, look at verse 28. Uh, and at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, so the immigrants among them, the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In asking us to give to provide to ministry and for people's needs, God is shaping our hearts to be kinder and more empathetic and compassionate. Look what it says in uh, Deuteronomy 15. Just turn to the next chapter in verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Sometimes some Israelites would be sold into, would have to be sold into slavery or a kind of slavery in order to pay off their, their debt. And built into the law was a release time. They could never be like the, the person they sold themselves to never owned them. And there was a release time. 
And uh, if you look at the same chapter, verse 13, um, again, God is shaping their hearts. He says, and when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. Giving generously shapes our minds and our hearts for God and the things that God cares about and the kind of person that God is shaping us to be, forming us to be. Are you worshiping God in your giving or are you just kind of doing it automatically or doing it out of duty or just giving him from leftovers? Not generously. So if we're gonna keep money from ruling in our lives and ruining our lives, um, we have to offer it. Secondly, we have to give it. Thirdly, we have to enjoy it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I want to I wanna offer a little bit more nuance there. So God wants us to enjoy what he has given us. Um, we, we go back, as we did two weeks ago, at creation. He creates this beautiful, lush garden. He says, eat from every tree, except one. <laughs> it's the one rule. But every tree, you know, eat from it. Enjoy it. Uh, people who live sparsely, not enjoying the fruit of their labor. They're not necessarily the heroes in the story, all right? There, there are times when they are for the reasons that they do it. I mean, Jesus lived sparsely, and he was a hero in the story. The disciples lived sparsely while they were going with him. So, um, but people who just live sparsely, uh, it's, it's really a philosophy, it's utilitarianism. And uh, we, we really need to kind of pick it apart a little bit. Even if you choose to live that way, which you can, you know, um, you have to understand that you have to be careful it doesn't become utilitarianism. So utilitarianism is the idea that our money should only go to our absolute needs and that we should meet our absolute needs in the most minimal way possible and then give away the rest. Actually, Jesus didn't live that way. <laughs> um, and really the person, there's a story of this, the person who's a utilitarian in the Gospels is Judas. So, um, you know, it, 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 it is not extolled as the way of doing things. Now, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't choose to live this way, that God might not lead you to lead this way. God leads a lot of people to, to lead, to live very sparsely. But it's not portrayed as the way to follow Jesus for anyone in the Gospels other than those who were literally going to walk with him. If you're going to follow me and walk with me, you've got to leave everything behind. He would say that to them. But he had lots of followers who were not walking with him, who retained their homes and retained their wealth and actually from their wealth supported Jesus so that he didn't have to get a job. So that he had food, he stayed in people's places. Um, so uh, it's just, it's not like living sparsely is the way, is portrayed as being the way to live. So Mark Buchanan, who's a pastor and author, he says there's actually an idol. He, he, calls it, he calls utilitarianism an idol that is oftentimes missed. He says missed consistently for 500 years. He says that the God of utilitarianism determines the usefulness of a thing based on its efficiency, based on its productivity, and despises pleasure 
of something for the sheer enjoyment it provides. Um, that's not a biblical idea. God gives us things so that we can enjoy them. Share them, yes. Recognize it's his, but enjoy them. Uh, many, if not most, of the heroes of the Old Testament are rich. Um, all the patriarchs are rich. King David was rich. You get to the New Testament. Uh, a lot of the people that Paul mentions, just any, any person who understands economics, reading Paul's letters can read all the people, the people that have, can host the entire church in their house. Well, we know what the size of houses were. That could only be a rich person's house. Um, and other things, people who traveled, who owned businesses, men and women who owned businesses, all that sort of thing. So, so there are rich people from the beginning, you know, all throughout the Bible that are not demanded to not be rich. Like that's, like you can't be that in a Christian at the same time. They were instead encouraged to give generously, to help the poor, to provide for the ministry, and to treat people fairly. Because they oftentimes had power, if not always had power with their money. So remember from last uh, two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. And you dethrone money when it's ruling in you by acknowledging and offering everything to God for his use. Money will not own you when you do this and you give proportionately from what you have, but you also dethrone it by enjoying it as from him. Enjoy it as from God. And so enjoy it mindfully. Uh, Enjoy it, thank God for it. This is from God. He gave it for our enjoyment. I'm going to share it with others. I'm going to experience enjoyment and bring others into this as well. Uh, enjoy it prayerfully. Make God your ultimate financial advisor. Um, talk to him about those big purchases. If you go, well, I don't want to ask him about that big purchase. Well, why not? <laughs> be, be the question. Search your heart. Um, enjoy it carefully. Enjoy it carefully. The, the Bible constantly warns the affluent. Um, and you see this in a lot of the Old Testament rich people especially, and you see it in the letters of Paul as well, that money can ruin people. In fact, in that same letter in 1 Timothy um, chapter 6, it says, for the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's a real, honest assessment, warning. It would be wise to listen to that warning. God owns it all, or you understand that, or it owns you. Um, so what will it be? Will you offer? Will you offer it to God? It's easy to say. It's easy in some ways to say, God, it's all yours. Um, but if you mean it, will you give it? in the way that God is calling you to give, to dethrone money in your life? And will you enjoy it mindfully as from him? So we're gonna continue our worship by responding to God um, in various ways. We're, gonna, we're going to um, celebrate communion together as we do every week. Uh, this is the one time a month where uh, you can choose to come forward for communion and hear the gospel preached to you as you take communion. All we ask is that you come to the center, please, 
and then go back and remain seated during communion, then, then there's room to, to get by. Uh, because not everybody's gonna get up at the same time or get up, get up at all. You, if you want uh, gluten-free, there's some in the back, um, in the packages, and um, so uh, if you wanna just maybe grab the packet and you don't wanna do it, you can, you can celebrate communion on your own as well. Um, so just remind you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're gonna sing, we're gonna pray. We have the prayer station up here where you can pray for people in your life who are far from God and they need the light of Christ in their life. So it's not about lighting a candle, it's about prayer. We have a kneeling station back there. We're gonna sing. We're gonna respond, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your many gifts. We thank you that you not only own it all, but that you are a good and generous God. Help us grow in greater trust, trusting you with everything that we have, everything that we have, our time, our influence, our strength, our money, our possessions, our children, our friends, our spouses, our loved ones. You are trustworthy. Help us to grow in our trust of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.